morning. Today we're continuing a series that we've been on for quite some time. And we're looking at this idea of flourish. And, and, and this morning we're talking about to flourish when you realize that Jesus is coming. And I think so many of you know that Jesus came the first time. And when he came the first time, he came as a babe in Bethlehem. We know the whole story. And we know that he lived as a, as a boy, as a teenager, as a man. And he eventually would die on a cross on our behalf, as we've already discussed. And then uh, as a result of him dying, we see that he's resurrected. And as a result of his resurrection, he comes back, spends some time with those that he knew for 40 days. And just before he leaves, he makes a promise. He basically says, I'm coming back. And we've been waiting for 2,000 years for his return. And the thing that we know based on the authority of scripture is the fact that he said he's coming back. And therefore, I think we need to take him up on his promise because he said that he will return. Now, when people start thinking and, and have ideas about Jesus' coming, sometimes they get confused. Sometimes they say, now, wait a second, let me, let me get this straight. Well, Gary, if you were here last week, Gary was open to the idea of what we think is found in Scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What we find there is what we believe is the rapture of the church. Then we come to chapter 5, and Paul basically gives a part two to Jesus' return when he talks about the idea of the return of Jesus. Now, look at the introduction. The day of the Lord, found in verse 2, is a phrase that is repeated throughout the Bible. If you were to look carefully in the Old Testament, you'll find that it's made reference to 19 times. By the time you make your way to the New Testament, there's about 14 references to this day. Sometimes it just says the day. Sometimes it actually uses the terminology, the day of the Lord. Now, this phrase is a period of time. Now, it's not a 24-hour day in which, we, in which God will deal with the wickedness of this world. The Bible calls this period of time the tribulation period in which he will judge the world. There's going to come a time when he comes back that he's going to judge the world. Now, to, to clear up some confusion we might have here, it appears that the return of Christ, there's really going to be two events that surround that. The first thing you see there on your outline is something called the rapture. Again, we talked about that last week. But then there's also the return. So there seem to be two different things, but they in Scripture, it's all the same reference. So the rapture, look on your outline, it means Jesus comes in the air. Now, when it says that he comes to the, in the air, it does not mean that everyone will see him necessarily. We see in scripture that the Bible says we'll be called up, okay? Those who are believers, those who are part of the church. But then we have the idea of the return. So there's gonna come a time in which he's gonna call believers out of this world, but then there's the return in which Jesus will literally come to the earth. All will see him. Everyone will see his influence. Then under the rapture, we see that Jesus comes for his own, those who know him as, his Lord, as their Lord and Savior. And then the return, Jesus comes with his own. So when he makes his grand appearance here on earth, according to scripture, those believers he took the first time will return with him because he'll be setting up his kingdom here on earth. Then we see the rapture. We see the saved are removed, those who know Christ. And then the return, as I said, Jesus is revealed. The rapture, the saved are delivered from wrath. They're saved from wrath. And the unsaved 
we find will experience wrath. Now, that is a big deal. And that's really the subject matter that Paul's talking about here in this letter. Who are those who will fall under the wrath of God? So look on your outline. The Christian doctrine concerning his coming. Now, when you think of a phrase Christian doctrine, I think so many people have different ideas about what that means. Uh, for one thing, many people use Christian as some generic term. When I, refer to, when I refer to Christian, I'm talking about those who have come to God, they're in proper relationship through Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about someone who was born into a certain family. I'm not talking about those who are born into a certain nation or whatever that may imply. I'm talking about those who have come to God through Jesus on his terms, the terms he set, not what we may set, okay? So there's a big difference in how we're using the word Christian here. I believe they could be known as believers or follower of Jesus. Now, when it comes to doctrine, doctrine is basically those things that God has revealed either about his nature or his plans or his character. And so those are those things that are out there. This is relating to his second coming. So as Paul writes about this, he's going to give us two illustrations that will give us three characteristics concerning Jesus's return. The first thing we find, look on your outline, is the coming will be unexpectedly. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, but concerning the times and the seasons. Now, all this is in reference to Jesus' return. And he's basically, he uses two terms here. When he uses the word times, he's talking about clock and calendar. He's talking about something you can put uh, on the calendar and you can even put the time on it. He's saying that's time. But then he says in reference to the seasons. He's talking about epics, maybe in history. He's talking about events. He's talking about eras. He's talking about seasons. He's talking about those things that are not necessarily measured by a clock or a calendar. So listen to what he's saying. He's saying, when it comes to these things, he, he, he's saying, let's look at what we're looking at. Let's look at, is there a history to this? Now, there are different ways to look at history. Some of you may have studied this. There's something called cyclical history in which basically, when it comes to what we're experiencing in history, everything is going in circles, okay? How many of you heard of that before? We're just kind of going in circles. There's really no purpose to life. There's just nothing to it. We're just kind of going in circles, okay? Been going in circles ever since we started, all right? Then there's the idea of looking at history linearly, in a linear point of view, where there is no purpose. It's the idea that we're evolving but we're not headed anywhere. Some people say we're getting better, but there's really no purpose behind what's being done as it relates to history. But then there's another way of looking at history as it relates to a linear way in which there is purpose, in which history is heading somewhere. It's moving towards something that it began with purpose, it continues with purpose, and it will end in purpose. That is the whole point of view that we find in scripture, that God is sovereign, that he is providential, that he had the beginning, he's carrying on the middle and he'll come at the end or he'll be there at the end. Now, that's what he's referring to here. But let's look at the whole verse. In 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse one, but concerning the, the times of seasons, concerning his second coming, brethren, those who are Christian, you have no need that I should write to you. 
Now, now it's interesting that Paul would use those terms or translates out that way, but you know what Paul's basically saying? When it comes to his return, I don't have that information. Matter of fact, don't ask me because I don't know. He's just saying, as he's going to say in just a little while, it is going to happen, but I have no clue when. Now, does that sound familiar? In Acts chapter one, here's what you read. It says, therefore, when they, speaking of the disciples, had come together, they asked Jesus saying, now this is just before he's going to go back to heaven. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of God? Are you going to make everything right right now? Are you going to put everything under your subjection? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the season which the father has put in his own authority. Now, basically, he's saying that really is none of your business right now. Now, think about that. He's basically saying, you just carry on. You do what you were told. All right. Now, what were they told? You get to the next part. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's basically saying, I've, give you, I've given you your mission. I've given you your purpose. You're to make me known. You're to tell the story of the gospel. You tell everyone until I return. And guess what? I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to return. All right? Did you know there was a time, and, and I don't understand how this works this way. There was a time in which Jesus was walking the face of the earth, and they basically asked when the kingdom would be restored or when, when it would all be set right. And did you know what Jesus' response was? He said, I don't know either. The father knows, but I don't know. So it seems to be this big mystery as to when Jesus is coming back. He didn't even know himself when he walked the face of the earth. Now, it's kind of ironic that occasionally, now some of you are real young and I get that. I'm, I used to be young, but anyway, <laughs> but, but many of you may not remember that, especially back in the 80s, I know of three different incidences in which people said they definitely knew when Jesus was coming back. And they basically told us the year. I remember one of them was 1984. I remember the other one was 1988. And when it didn't happen in the spring of 1988, they said, well, we messed up, miscalculated. It's the fall of 1988. I remember all that. I remember it. But the Bible says what? You don't know. But however, there are clues. There are clues. I want you to hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. Now, some of you, when I say turn to Revelation chapter 6, some of you are sitting here getting all giddy because you just love the book of Revelation. I mean, here's all kinds of stuff. Tell me what's in there. Some of you are terrified. I hate that book. There's so much uncertainty. There's too much mystery. And so I get your feelings. But in Revelation chapter 6, actually the whole book, it gives clues about what it will look like when Jesus returns. Okay? Now, one thing that we do know is going to be going on, there will be rebellion against God and his word, okay? Now, some of you would say, that's been going on since the very beginning. And you would be right. It was going on when Jesus was around. It continues to go on. But you know what's ironic about what we're seeing today in, our, in, in this day and age, just a little different, is the fact that professing people who claim to be people of the word, people of the Bible, no longer believe what the Bible says. The Bible is very clear about how we are to conduct ourselves when it comes to being a Christian. The Bible is very clear of the expectations that God has on us. But so many people, denominations, churches, pastors, 
pastors. The list goes on and on and on of those who profess to know Christ, who claim they are teaching the word of God, that they either conveniently leave out parts or they totally misconstrue to align themselves up with where the culture is going. And y'all, that I'm not so sure has been going on ever since the beginning. Professing people who claim to know the Bible, who don't teach the Bible. And, and that's sad because it's, it's misleading people. It really is. And it's adding to the deception that many people are living under because professing Christians are saying they see certain things that's not there or they conveniently don't talk about it. Listen, if I, I'm one of those people that if I thought I was misrepresenting something, especially something as important as this, I would get out. I would get up. It doesn't mean I live a perfect life, but I'm definitely not going to teach you something that I don't believe is there. And I'm not going to do that. I would just soon get out. And that's how serious it needs to come when it comes to God's word. So we see that there will be rebellion against God and his word. There's another thing. Uh, the nations of the world are going to turn against Israel. You say, what? that sounds so old, but it's going to be new too. The nations of the world will turn against Israel. Israel is the timepiece of his return. I'm serious. There's so much about Israel that's there. Uh, there'll be wonders in the sky. There'll be many false teachers. There will be series of sets of judgments. All those things are, are, are there that are in place. Now, let me give you a snapshot of what the Bible says about this time. So look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. John, who is basically seeing all this unfold, he's writing, he's having visions. Verse 12, I looked and when he, God opened the sixth seal or the angel and beyond, and beyond, there was a great earthquake and the sun, this is interesting, became black, a sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as, the, as a fig drops in late, uh, its late figs when it was shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Do you, see, do you hear the chaos here? And the kings of the earth, the great men, the, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, some of you are like, I got up this morning, I put on my clothes, wanted to come to church. Some of you may have been forced, I get that. Uh, I was forced at times in my life. But anyway, and you came in here, and thank, thank you for talking about the wrath of God. That's just what I wanted to hear. Listen, this is not fun for me. I don't enjoy this, but you know something? I am someone who teaches the word of God. I not only need to be talking about the promises of God and all the wonderful things God, God has for us, I have to, as a teacher of God's word, to sound warnings to you also. To tell you the full counsel of God's word in such a way. Listen, I don't want to stand before God and him say, well, why did you only preach part of it? Why didn't you warn those who were outside of the scope of my grace? Why didn't, you, why didn't you warn them? Why didn't you plead with them to come to me? I don't want to stand there and take that. I want to do what he's called me to do. And, and listen, you need to hear the whole story. 
There's a message out there about the gospel that most people don't even know. And that's my attempt to help you to understand that there's so much more that's to the word. And some of this is very serious stuff. So turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter five. Again, Paul is trying to tell us, these are some things that you're gonna see before the return of Christ. So now we move from the Christian doctrine concerning his coming. We see the coming will be unexpectedly. We saw that. Now we're gonna look at the coming will be suddenly. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter five. For when you say peace and safety, listen to this, then sudden destruction comes upon them. When the whole world is saying, hey, Look at this. We're out here. Everything seems to be working out right. I mean, great day. We, this is kind of, we have Democrats and Republicans working together. Everything is just smooth sailing. Then destruction, right? <laughs> I mean, really, that's the kind of language. Everything seems to be going just right. And then all of a sudden, it's going to be torn loose. That's what he's talking about. And again, these are not easy subjects, but these are the things he's talking about. Next, we see that the coming will be, the coming will be surely. It's surely gonna happen. Look at this, 1 Thessalonians chapter five, the second part of verse three. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. One thing about a woman who, who has a baby uh, in the womb, so to speak, is that baby is coming out, right? That baby's coming out. And what he's saying here, he's saying, as sure as that baby is going to come out, so will this happen. Now, how many of you ever met these women, bless their hearts? I mean, they've, they're carrying this baby. It seems like they've been pregnant for two years. You ever met these people? <laughs> bless their heart. And you go and you ask them, you say, well, how much longer? You know, you think any day now. And they oh, I got, uh, let's say, I got about 10 more weeks. Do what? <laughs> Don't you feel sorry for him? I mean, your heart just goes out to him. But, but basically what he's talking about here, he's talking about as surely as a baby will come, so will the return of Christ. Now, it's interesting. Doctors can tell us a little bit about when that baby may show, uh, the due dates, you know how all that works. They can kind of tell you a general idea of it, but they can't tell you the exact time unless it's scheduled, but they can't. And you know what? Even when they do come, when you're kind of expecting it, doesn't, isn't it still a surprise? It is. So the day of the Lord, think about it. This day that we're talking about, the return of Christ, literally divides humanity into two different groups. There will only be two groups of people in the world, not black and white or brown, not Democrat, Republican, not Catholic, Protestant, only those who are saved and those who are not. That will be all that matters when it comes to the return of Christ. Now look on your outline, the Christian distinction concerning his coming. You see, there's gonna be some distinctions between those. Not only, not only do we see the, the fact that there will be some, those who are saved and those who are not saved, he begins to describe what the two groups look like. And that's where he takes up here in verse four. So look on your outline, the Christian distinction concerning his coming, the first group identifies not, identifies not with darkness. So look at verse, five, verse four. He says, but you, okay, he's talking, he's contrasting the unbelievers. He's been talking about them, but he's talking about you believers, but you brethren are not in darkness. He's basically saying, you don't have to be totally surprised by this. You're not gonna, this is not, this is not something you're gonna be totally consumed with. That's literally the language. When he talks about 
darkness. Here's what the Bible normally means. Moral and intellectual darkness. Those who are living and they're oblivious to what really is going on. How many of you hear some of the statements that are made by people in the public arena? And it's like they're saying this, and then they're saying this, and it's like when you put the two, it's not even logical when you put them together. It's almost like, how do they not see this? How do they, I mean, how is it that we're gonna go over here and we're gonna do everything in our power to protect turtle eggs? You know where I'm going with this? And we're not going to let you, I mean, no, that, that. And then over here, a baby can be born and left to die on a table. How is it, how did we miss that one? How does that happen? It's intellectual darkness. It's moral darkness. How does that happen? And we look at it and we're like, this does not compute. It's part of the darkness. Not only that, it identifies not with darkness, but this group, they identifies with light. Jesus, there's seven statements Jesus makes in the gospels when we walk the face of the earth. There's seven, we call them seven I am passages. One of them, he said this, he said, I am light. I am light. That means light. Now, when you think of light, there's, there's several things about it. Light really carries, it has a nature about it, okay? And it has an influence about it. Okay, so light is light, right? Okay, and it's light until something infringes itself upon it. Okay, so, so we've got this nature of light and we've got this influence of light. The same way with darkness. We have this nature of darkness and we have this influence of darkness. You, you see what I'm saying? That's the terminology. That's the way the words are being used. Now, now Paul, we need, most people don't know this. Paul was a brilliant man. He wasn't someone who just kind of studied the things of Christ. He, he knew Greek philosophies. And you say, how do you know that? Read the Bible. There's, there's all kinds of Greek rhetoric in this. Now, it doesn't mean that the Greeks are right, but he's using a language they understood to prove his point about the gospel. And we see that all through there. So Paul, he's not just some guy writing. He wasn't some hillbilly just writing something. He was an intellectual. And he's using this terminology. He's basically saying there's two different spheres of nature and influence. There's light and darkness, or you could say there's day and night. Look at verse five. He says, you are all sons of light and sons of day. Those who know Christ, those who profess him, that's who you are. It's your nature. It should be your influence. He says, we are not of the night nor darkness. Now, where does that lead us? It leads us to our next point. The Christian duty concerning his coming. Most of the time in scripture, or all the time in scripture, when you see Christian doctrine, there's always an expectation of Christian duty. There's always that idea of what you're going to do about what you know now. There, that's all through scripture. And so basically that's what he's putting in front of us. So the phrase, let us, those who are in the light, those who walk in day, in verse six, is an appeal to Christian duty. He's basically saying, live consistently who you are. Who are you? Well, Paul said it many different ways. He said the main way he liked to say it was you're in Christ. You're identifying Christ. Isn't it amazing how the world is using this word, identify? Everybody's trying to identify with something. Have you noticed that? They're trying to identify with a certain gender. They're trying to identify with a certain party. They're trying to identify... Some people, I think, are confused about even their race. I, I mean, there's all kinds of confusion out there. And, and basically, 
Paul, in everything that he says, he says, y'all, whether you're talking about male or female, whether you're talking about Greek or Jew, we're all in this. We don't measure ourselves by that identity. We measure ourselves by the identity of who we are in Christ. And that's what he's using here. So he says, if that's you, live like it. And here it is. Look on your outline. Our duty is, number one, to wake up. It's really the idea of be alert. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. There are those who are people of darkness. That's their nature. Uh, that's where they're living. That's, that's the influence they have. Don't do that. That's not who you are anymore. You've trusted Christ. So don't do that. But let us watch and be sober. Now, why would he say that in this context? How many of you have noticed that dark, even though you're in the light, darkness still wants to invade you? Have you ever seen that? Oh yeah, some of you may call it peer pressure. Some of you may, uh, may be the, uh, the closer, and by the way, the closer you are to conforming to the world and this ideas about you and who they, the more you're moving in that direction, the more you're moving towards darkness according to scripture. So if you're trying to identify in ways that are not in Christ, guess what? You're moving towards the darkness. That will start taking on a nature of its own within you. And it will have that influence. He's saying, be careful with that. Verse seven, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. He's saying they're oblivious to all this. How many of you look at a world right now and think they are oblivious to sometimes logic? I mean, really, have you noticed that? They're oblivious to God. There's all kinds of things. He's saying, be careful with that. Next, he says to clean up. Verse eight, but let us who are of the day be sober. Don't fall for these harmful influences in your life. Don't let the darkness invade your life. You're not deceived. Matter of fact, you know what I believe? I believe this. I believe if the Spirit of God is, is in me, which the Bible says, if we are professing, we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. We came to Jesus on the terms God set forth. He's there. The Holy Spirit's there. We're in the Word. I don't believe we can be deceived. I really don't. Because the Word represents light. The Holy Spirit brings light. He brings understanding. He brings wisdom. He brings us to something that's discernible. And basically saying, but we can get caught up. We need to learn to, to clean up. Next, he says, suit up, suit up. All this is Paul's challenge to live according to your new nature. Your new nature, you're in the light. First Thessalonians chapter five, the second part of verse eight, he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, why would he pull these out? Well, the breastplate of faith is really our trust and our love for God. Now, here's what's interesting about both these things, the breastplate and the helmet. Guess who, it's not something we go and build. Did you know that? It's not something that we go shop for. You know what the Bible says about it? It's given to us. It's given to us. It's provided for us. The problem with most Christians is they don't know what's really provided for them. And they're oblivious to the, to the ways of the enemy. They're oblivious how the world is influencing them in such a way because they don't know what's available to them. Don't know what the word says about where they are and who they are. And so many people, so what's the breastplate of faith in our love for God? What does that provide? It helps us to stand against temptation. It, it helps us to respond to God's love more than sin and darkness. 
Next, we see a helmet, the, a helmet, the hope of salvation. We see this in verse eight. Did you know your salvation has three parts to it? It really does. If you look in scripture, there's three parts to your salvation. So when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's three stages, there's three parts of that. Number one, there's something called justification. When you came to know him, the Bible says you became right before God. You, you get that, right? That, that we, we take on the righteousness of Jesus. That means we're right before God. We, we, it's all in him. It's provided for us. Now we're right with God. That's justification. All right. Second of all, we enter into a process called sanctification. It's the whole idea of being set apart to something. It's the whole idea. Listen, it's really a description of walking out from under the darkness into the light. That's literally the terminology that you look at when you study the whole idea of sanctification. And so we're sitting here, but here's what we do many times. It's the idea of moving to something, but also away from something. Now, let me tell you where we mess up as, as, as believers. And, and people. We're over here, and, and what's happening? All of a sudden, Spirit of God comes in our life. It says, this doesn't need to be, your conscience is quickened. All of a sudden, it's made alive. And uh, all of a sudden, you, you're, you're not comfortable with things you used to be comfortable with. That's how I knew I was a Christian, I'll be honest with you. All of a sudden, things, I saw everything from a different way. You know why? Because now, I was identifying with something that was different. I was identifying with the light. And so here's what sanctification is. Sanctification is a process of being moved towards something. I'm being moved towards the light. It's not that I'm sitting in the darkness trying to find a way to escape this so I can go over here. No, 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 that's not sanctification. It's not starting with the premise over here. Listen, the hold that darkness has on you has been broken by what Christ brings to your life. All that's been broken. Now it's a matter of stepping towards who you truly are, who you truly are. And so it's not me over here trying to figure out, now how can I get out of this? How can I do this? No, you just begin to take steps towards what he has for you. And as a result, what happens? You're moving away from the things that you once identified you. Now you're identified differently and it becomes clearer. And we're not all sitting around trying to figure out who we are. <laughs> we're in Christ terminology we find here. Next, the Christian desti destiny concerning his coming. Listen to this. According to the Bible, we have appointments in the future that we will keep. Did you know that? Hebrews reads this. It is appointed to man once to die and then a judgment. Now, when we think of judgment, we think this thing that's going to be done to us or some sentencing, which all that is contained in that. But here's, here's the big part of it all. It's appointed man to, once, to die once, and then, listen, face God. That's literally what that means. And then face God. And that's, that's a point we're going to keep. For those of us who do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we die, we're going to face God. And from that moment, based on scripture, and this is not fun to preach, it's definitely not popular, then we will face his wrath. That's not good. That's not good at all. And that's what we're talking about here. That's one destiny. John chapter three says this, who who believes in the son of God has everlasting life. You have exactly what God intended you to have. 
Okay, you have that. And he who does not believe the son who have not come on God's terms towards Jesus Christ shall not see life. You do not, you will not behold of all those things that he provided for you through that salvation. But the wrath of God abides on him. Now, let me tell you one thing many of you probably didn't know. I think most people think, yeah, this idea of wrath will be at the end when, when I'm sentenced for not knowing uh, Jesus Christ and that. No, did you know that the Bible says that, that wrath abides on us even while we still walk the face of the earth before we come to Christ? You ever, you ever met these people who are mad at the world, mad at everybody, blames everybody for their mistakes and their, where they are in life? You ever met those people? You, you know who they, no one, I mean, no wonder that way. They're living under wrath. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says before we came to know Jesus, this is hard language. We were an enemy of God. I don't know about you, but I came to know Jesus when I was eight years old. I've always had awareness of who Jesus is. I was raised in that kind of home. And, and, and I mean, the right view of who Jesus is. And, and the, but the Bible says when I was seven, six, I was an enemy of God. That little two-year-old that you think is so sweet, you know, sinner, I've told you, he's a sinner. <laughs> he's an enemy she's an enemy of God some of you are sitting there I, I get that they're an enemy of me too <laughs> no I'm just kidding <laughs> but, but the thing is y'all that's who we are that's the description this is how the, how the Bible describes us so look on your outline we go from wrath this is a Christian destiny look at verse 9 for God did not appoint us to wrath it's not his will that any should perish. Those of you who are believers who come on God's terms through Jesus Christ, guess what? The wrath will never touch your life. You know why? Because a wrath was placed on the one you're putting your faith in. Your wrath was placed on him. That's a pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have an appointment with God's wrath. But did you know there's a way of escape? Look on your outline from wrath to salvation. You, beside the word salvation, just put rescued. Isn't that a cool way to think about salvation? Rescued. That's really what it means. First Thessalonians, the second part of verse, verse nine says, but to obtain salvation, to be rescued from the wrath. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? By turning to Jesus who died for us, who died for you. That whether we wake, whether we're alive or sleep or we're dead, we should no longer live together with him. We should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify with one another as you are doing these things. He's basically saying, if you're aligning yourself with the day in the night, excuse me, in the, in the light. He said, you basically are there. You're not dealing with the wrath. You've entered into his salvation. How do we get it? Romans 5, right here on the screen. For when we were still sinners, I'm excuse, uh, still without strength. You know what that means? It means we were hopeless and there was nothing that we of ourselves could do about our condition. That's literally what it means. And it says, when we were there in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's who you were before Christ. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love. Listen, he's not demonstrating the world's love. He's demonstrating his own love. And that's a special kind of love that we find in scripture. He says this, he says this towards us, in that while we were still sinners, nothing we could do about our situation, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, now that we've accepted him, we shall be saved from what? Wrath. The wrath. So here's the idea. 
God judged sin 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary. God's wrath fell upon Jesus. It, if, you come, if you will come to Jesus Christ, you will be at a place, listen, where God's wrath will never touch you. That's what your salvation's all about. That's his rescue in you. Here's the application. Do you identify with the light or with the darkness? Which one? In the light, we're not deceived. There's purpose. We're rescued. In darkness, we can be deceived. There's no purpose and we're not rescued. Which one do you identify with? And I want to close with this thought. One day, he's coming back. He's coming back. It will happen. It is something that's out there on the calendar. We don't know when, but he's coming back. Are you ready? I want to ask you, if you will, if you would just stand to your feet. We're going to do a simple invitation. I have to do this based on this, what we've talked about this morning. I'm, there's no other pastor that's going to be here. I'm just going to be here at the front. Wesley's going to play softly. I just want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Don't look around. I want you to look at your own life right now. And I want you to ask yourself, am I truly right with God? Am I trusting in something outside of what Jesus has provided for me? If you're trusting in something outside of what Jesus has provided for you, it's not me saying it, but the Bible says you're an object of God's wrath. I'm not making this up. It's all in there. But his will is that none should perish. He doesn't want any to fall under that wrath. He made a way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the life, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. So if that's where you are today, I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be fearful. I'm going to be here at the front. If you're saying, all you got to do is walk up and say, you know something? I want what Jesus provides. And I'll know how to help you from there. I want you to take these moments Determine where you are. I'm here at the front. If you want to talk with someone, I'll be glad to talk with you. Just say, I want what Jesus provides. I'll be here at the front. Do what he's asking you to do in these moments. Would your heads bowed and your eyes closed?